Hey, welcome to the Football Diary podcast. Thanks for joining us wherever you're listening right now. It's been another week where football hasn't quite taken the headlines here in the UK. And it's been match of the day that's been the headline instead. And Gary Lineker, you might have heard actually, he's uh, not presented match of the day this week. And it's the first time this has happened ever. So lots of talking points politically. We're not going to delve into that, Miles, are we? Because there's no point delving into a political discussion in a football podcast. So we'll look at the fans' take on it. How did you see match of the day um, without any punditry made? Do you think that it's worth having pundits in this day and age, having seen the way it is without anything at all? Because I thought it was quite dry and I missed that really. Yeah, I thought it was awful, to be totally honest. I mean, I didn't I didn't watch it when it was on. I think even the, the concept is awful more than anything. It's, for me, match of the day is such an institution into the British media yeah. and such a big part of our football consumption that what it stands for is that extra layer of insight, that uh, inside the game kind of knowledge. You can watch the highlights now so easily elsewhere that you go to match of the day because it's match of the day. So the format changing and missing the presenters ruins it completely. I I, I just thought it was was ridiculous. And those Mm. people that were on Twitter saying, oh, it's much better, it's so much easier, they're ludicrous opinions. And actually, I don't truly believe anyone actually has that opinion of match of the day. No, like if if they, that's their opinion, they wouldn't consume that 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 content anyway. They go to YouTube and watch the highlights. I suppose it's easier to do that. I'm going to say it raises the question about how it's going to be consumed going forward because our generation might be the last one to kind of watch Match of the Day in in its current form, and it kind of makes you think: Would we be able to get by without that kind of program, or would it just be replaced by another broadcaster doing the same thing? But it, do, I think, it made me realize that it does need to maybe change a little bit. It's shown quite late on a Saturday, but again, mm. like you say, it's an institution. I've been raised on Match of the Day, yeah. and we talk about football passionately. It's always good to hear, especially an ex-professional footballer's opinion on how the week's gone, as isn't it really? Yeah, and I mean, the content can be replaced in certain ways. I think if you think about how you consume even a match, uh, as an individual match now, the way the Sky cover a game or BT yeah. or maybe it's Amazon, the joys of it are the punditry. Look how much of a talking point Roy Keane's antics become or Gary Neville and Jamie Carragher treat each other or even on Amazon, the way that they've brought in Ali McCoyce. And we, we can still talk about our love of the way that football is presented and... Yeah. Gary Lineker is an absolute hero of that. He, he sets the benchmark in so many ways. And without taking this into a political discussion, the idea that he can't fulfil that role on match of the day because he is entitled to his own views, that's a form of censorship that I don't really think this country wants to, to go down. It's a really difficult process. And any football fan that doesn't recognise that is missing the bigger picture of what sport is. Sport is meant to be a community-based thing that builds team spirit, harnesses the idea of camaraderie. And what Lineker was speaking out about, I think that that's the very embodiment of what makes us appreciate sport. Yeah. That anyone is welcome and anyone can take part. I think the, the stance that the rest of his teammates, let's call them, in terms of Ian Wright, Alan Shearer, other broadcasters that refused to do it took, shows that they want to protect match of the day as match of the day 100% and also protect the individual to be an individual and have his own free will and not be controlled by the BBC it's such a weird notion I don't think we can ever see that change I mean today it's already been announced that he'll be back at the weekend so some sort of compromise as they put it has been reached I'll be really interested to see what that is because for me it's as simple as it's his own public platform 
Yeah. Whether he he represents the BBC in in some ways, if he made the comments on Match of the Day, if he'd logged into Match of the Day's official Twitter account and and posted on there, I could see them having issues with professionalism rather yeah. than the viewpoints. Fair enough, but he's his own person, and we have to respect that. And that's one of the things that makes consuming football so brilliant: seeing other people who are their own people giving their takes. That's what oh, we do. Yeah. Of course it is. Yeah. Look, Nicely put. Well, we're here. Yeah. <laughs> we, we want a podcast. We want people to listen to what we have to say about it. There are plenty of podcasts that do the same. Mm. There are YouTube channels everywhere now where people are talking about their opinions on football. That has grown so much to the point where some things get more views than the actual games themselves. That to me says all you need to know about, is it better without punditry? No, of course it isn't. Mm. You're missing things that the average person won't pick up on. It yeah. misses the whole spirit of the game, the conversation about the game. That's why we like football. Well, you know, I was just playing devil's advocate there for, for conversation's <laughs> sake. But yeah, I 100% agree. And I think when you saw, I mean, I don't want to touch on this too much, but Liverpool's thrashing of Man United the other week, <laughs> like Liverpool fans would have raced to match of the day to see their team yep. do it again and to see what the pundits' opinions were. United fans might have done the same. I did just to see as an autopsy what other, other people think about how United performed and you know where we can improve and things like that. Imagine the, the games, this games that have happened this weekend, and you've not been able to see what pundits think unless you go looking elsewhere for it. That ritual's mm-hmm. kind of gone for them. And I'm going to start with uh, the first game of this weekend, actually, that I think is worth talking about. is Bournemouth beating Liverpool. Um, nice segue there, you see. And from a Liverpool 9-0 win to a 1-0 defeat. Bournemouth fans must be fuming that they didn't see their game on match of the day being talked about because they did really well. But can we start... First of all, we'll get some Liverpool conversation in that isn't gloating about a 9-0 victory this time and see how they went from that to losing 1-0 this time around. It, is it maybe a hangover and overconfidence? Maybe a degree of arrogance? We've seen that with Liverpool in other games this season where they've probably underestimated their opponent. Maybe it's one eye on the Champions League fixture midweek and not really wanting to exert too much in this game. But that seems odd when they're back in the top four conversation. I don't really know what went wrong here because there were, I thought taking Nunes off when they did was an odd change. Although he wasn't amazing, he was probably the most threatening player. A penalty miss away from taking a point from the game and then it's a bit less of a talking point, I suppose. Mm. It just wasn't very overwhelming. And I think the the major difference between the two fixtures, if you want to compare the 9-0 and the 1-0, was Bournemouth didn't play into Liverpool's hands. They held a deep line. They let Liverpool sit on the ball and let them try and dictate things. And they just didn't really have that many answers. And they defended resolutely. Whereas United left themselves susceptible to a counter-attack. So it was a completely different kind of fixture. I don't really know where the Real Madrid game falls in between that and what mm-hmm. Liverpool will be expecting midweek. But it's it's an odd result for Liverpool. One that I'm sure they'll be really frustrated with because it didn't allow them to build on the momentum that they had from last weekend yeah. going into the Madrid game. Like this, they they beat Bournemouth nine nil earlier in the season. Yeah. So if they'd gone and spanked them again, off the back of a seven nil with Man United the week before, that's a huge amount of confidence you can take to that Real Madrid game. And now it's uncertainty again and indifference and inconsistency. It's not how they would have wanted it. I think that's the kind of thing that's made me more surprised that this result's happened when it's happened because you'd expect a ton of momentum, wouldn't you, from that Man United Absolutely. victory? And with Real Madrid on the horizon, we were talking about, well, you were, especially in the last pod, about how Liverpool now look nailed on for top four. And suddenly that's all been thrown into question again. It's that doubt, I think, that uh, is frustrating for Liverpool fans because it did look like they were climbing the league table when everyone around them looks so mediocre. 
and they struggled to win against, struggled to get anything out of this Bournemouth game as well, when you think they'd have a ton of momentum. So I totally understand how Liverpool fans must be feeling right now. And I think for Jurgen Klopp, it raises more questions as well. Did they look tired in this game? I thought they did. Um, I mean, we've said that a few times this season, haven't we, as a hangover from last season, but it's been a gruelling season so far for many teams. But Bournemouth, to their credit, played really, really well, resolutely. Philip Billing got on the score sheet again. So we have to give credit to them too. But yeah, ahead of the Real Madrid game, I think Liverpool will be kicking themselves that they couldn't carry this momentum further. The only saving grace for them is that the teams nearest to them, below them, drop points as well. So it's not like a massive detriment to their top four race. Obviously, Newcastle winning and Tottenham winning makes that slightly more complicated, but they're not looking even further down as they were slightly earlier in the season at Brighton, Fulham and Brentford. So they're still cementing themselves above that pack slightly. I don't know, though. It's inevitable that they'll go out of the Champions League tomorrow. I'll I'll eat my hat if they don't. It would be amazing to see them stay. This season's success only comes down to do they qualify for the Champions League for next season, which seems an odd position to be in if you're Liverpool. And they got yeah. such an amazing win last week that uh, Liverpool fans must be in such a confused state because they don't know whether to be as public as they normally are by saying we're brilliant or whether they should hide away in shame like they've been doing for most of the season. It's a weird one, isn't it? Yeah, strange. And I think um, it's just the nature of the Premier League at that part of the table as well that uh, makes it so unpredictable too. And you think a team's gaining some kind of traction and then out of nowhere, this kind of result happens. It's an unpredictable season all round, isn't it? Worth noting, in case he's listening, radio silence from our friend Chris, who was very quick to message you <laughs> after the Man United game, but not heard from him this weekend, which is interesting. So, Chris, if you're listening, thanks for that, mate. I'm sure you were like most other Liverpool fans and hiding under a rock somewhere before Tuesday. Yeah, not surprised he's gone gone silent. I think a few Liverpool fans have had a bleak <laughs> reality check, haven't they? And uh, it's been a tough season for them. I think they've only won three games out of 13 on the road as well. So clearly away wow. from Anfield, they're really struggling. Um, mm-hmm. what, what do we put that down to? Maybe being figured out slightly. I think obviously mm. when you are the away team, one of the things that really benefits Liverpool is how quickly they can counter a team and take them apart. Teams have started to almost play like they're the away team at their own home grounds against Liverpool. That helps. Uh, I think, obviously, they had this bedding-in period of trying to get the new forward line moving. Although I think we saw the best of Gakpo and Nunes against United, we also saw their kind of inconsistencies in this game and how they're still kind of forming that system. Obviously, Jota was back as well. That was interesting to see how he will migrate into that team. I just think that they haven't got that consistency because they don't have a consistent lineup too. Their midfield is, is changing every game. It changed again for this game. I don't really know what to expect for Liverpool at the moment. And I think they, they've got a lot of figuring out to do in the summer. I think it makes me feel as a Man United fan like the 7-0 was just a freak result as well, which is you know a little bit more self-affirming for, for United fans. But on the other side of it, with unpredictability in part of the conversation now, the relegation battle that Bournemouth are very much still in is mm. wide open, isn't it? So from 12th yeah. place, you've got Crystal Palace, who how they're mm-hmm. still 12th, I don't know. But I don't <laughs> think that's going to last for long. All the way down um. to 20th in the table where Southampton still lie. There's five points separating those positions, which is crazy open, isn't it? I want to ask you the question, who do you think is the worst in form right now? And who can you see being the amongst the bottom three come the end of the season? It's a wide open question, mate, but how do you interpret it? It's really hard to work out at the moment because every team in there seems to have pulled out one weird result 
or picked up three points when other teams haven't. And then it's just, that's why it's so condensed now and why it's so congested down there. The worst form right now is Crystal Palace. They've not won a game this year. I think that's three games in a row without a shot on target. Yeah, I worry about Patrick Vieira a little bit. I hope that they kind of stick with him and see all the good that he's done at the club so far. But if they fall into the bottom three within the next couple of weeks, which is really possible, people might panic with a few games left. It might be safer to look at the last 10 games and think, let's try and get safety here. On the subject of Crystal Palace as well, um, you say Vieira, you worry about him, but he's been in charge for what a year and a half now. And Mm. he's got quite a lot of talent at his disposal, really, compared to the teams around him. There's three, four really outstanding young players. And they've kind of gone under the radar because they have been around sort of 12th, 13th all season. That could yeah. soon change because everybody's caught up with them with their terrible run of form. I mean, is he doing anything wrong? Does he need any more signings? Is that three or four transfer windows to get more players and hasn't really taken advantage of it? So is it his fault, essentially? What's the Patrick Vieira way of playing? I don't think I'm seeing much progress from them in the last year or so. Well, there's a huge difference from last year, of course. There's a big Conor Gallagher-shaped hole in their midfield. The intensity of that midfield isn't great. I think they brought in Sammy Laconga in January who struggled at Arsenal to fit into the Premier League and I've not seen enough of him at Palace to think that that's going to be any different. Obviously, Will Saha missed quite a big chunk of the year and has come back now. And I didn't think he was great against Villa. And then obviously, Man City is a difficult game. So maybe once he's bedded back into the side, things will get slightly more threatening. Although he's out of contract in the summer. And that's got to be a worry for Palace. I didn't realise that. I haven't, seen, I haven't seen talk of him signing any new deals. And I think he's probably missed his opportunity to go to a big four, big six club. But there'll be plenty of other Premier League clubs sniffing around him. And do you want to be a part of a Palace side that's kind of mediocre, mm. never going to have much of a cup run, never going to really challenge for a European place and not even have shots on target in a game? Or do you want to move on to someone like I wouldn't say Brighton because they're their rivals. or But someone even like Villa or West Ham, if they can sort themselves out where you might have a bit more of a shot at, at going for something at least or some experiences. I do wonder whether we might see Zaha move on. But for Palace, I think playing two in midfield, they, they look like they're struggling. I think they need to find some more depth in that, so that sort of area. They need to start being a bit more creative and getting players like Eze, mm. Elise, Zaha on the ball more. But they just yeah. look so flat. And boring. I watched them against Villa last weekend. I watched them against City this weekend. And I didn't see anything that made me think that's that same Palace side last year that would give teams a really tough game. Yeah. I thought it was really noticeable. But actually, the only reason City scraped this win was because of their own kind of lethargic performance rather than Palace yeah. doing much. It was very easy 1-0, coasted to it Man City really, didn't they? But if you look at uh, teams around them as well, Crystal Palace, there is that question of... I don't know, momentum, I guess, and just the mood around the club. And there's a lot of mediocrity, isn't there? You mentioned West Ham earlier. Their performances have been have been dire, um, really tough to watch. Um, they've been getting points here and there, but they should be much higher in the table. We've said this many times. Leicester City as well. They don't look very um, threatening at all at the minute. They look really leaky at the back. So... Which teams do you think in that bottom half have some momentum? We've mentioned Wolves before, haven't we, and Forest in previous pods. I still think they're the two that will climb clear because they don't look weaker. The other teams look a lot weaker around them, and I think they'll be okay, yeah. I even think Palace will to an extent. I think they'll sort themselves out. But below that, it's anyone's guess, isn't it? But Leicester and, and West Ham, I think, look really in trouble if they don't turn something around soon. I just... I. It sounds so silly to say because they are where they are because they've been playing poorly. 
Mm. But I just I still feel like Leicester and West Ham have got enough quality in their squad to get them through it. James Madison can take a game by the scruff of the neck and pull Leicester away. There are teams worse than them. I think the same with West Ham. They've got too many quality players that when the chips are down, I think they'll be okay. I don't think it'll be a, a, a glamorous survival. I think it will be because there's three teams worse than them. I think two of those, I'm staying with the two I've said all season, that I think Southampton and Everton will go down still. I know Everton got a win this weekend, but they got a, f- a goal within the first 40 seconds. Yeah. And then they didn't really Come have to on. worry about much the other end either. So I, I think that's a bit of a an outlier. I think, yeah, Southampton, Everton, the third team is really hard to call. Because Bournemouth would have been the other one that I was kind of a shoo-in for. But I actually will say the last few performances, you've seen a little bit more of Bournemouth. Billing is a great footballer all of a sudden. I remember him being just like a yellow card machine last time he was in the Premier League. But he seems to have a lot more about his game now. He seems far more intelligent. He makes really good attacking runs from that midfield area. And that helps. And obviously, Marcus Tavernier has been really good in his first season there. And the injuries that he's had have really set Bournemouth back. But you see enough in that squad that think maybe they could just get themselves out of it. They're probably the ones I'd worry about the most down there and could probably see getting pulled into it. Well, I say pulled into it, they're already there. I think Leeds are probably another one that you'd worry about, but their appointment of Javi Garcia, I think think that might do them enough. I think they could stay. I agree. It's difficult. It's actually really hard to call because although there's a lot of teams that are underperforming in the league and although there's a lot of teams in that area, there's also a lot of teams that you imagine are too good to be in that area. Mm. So it's it's really hard to call this season. I think Leeds are, are going to be safe. I think they, they're waiting for a bit of momentum, but I don't think it's far away. They got a really good point against Brighton, didn't they? Um, mm. Which was impressive um, against any kind of expectations that we had of them. Absolutely. Brighton are in good form. So I think they've got it in them, Leeds, to to pull away, but they just need a couple of wins against the teams around them. And I think that's what's dictating it at the minute is yeah. taking points off each other, is making it all the harder to predict. And um, when you look at the form so guys. When you look at the form guide, it's difficult to even gauge because there's no run of mm. like green in a row or anything like that. It's just yeah. win, draw, loss, win, draw, loss every single week. And for me, I would say, yeah, Southampton are too, too weak to stay up. They're too young. They probably need a season in the championship as well just to yeah, grow. I and I don't think they'll be in the championship for long if they do go down. So mm. they're probably the bottom team for me. I think Bournemouth are just not good enough quality-wise to sustain yeah. any kind of form as well. That third team, mate, I'm absolutely uncertain with. I have no idea. I was convinced for ages that Everton would go down and be that final team, but I'm not so sure now. Mm, it's hard. It's really hard to call. This is the first season in a long time that there's not been like a Norwich where you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, they're going yeah, down. And you a whipping boy. Week four. Um, there, there isn't really one. Even Southampton, who are, have been bottom for a while, they pick up the odd result here and there. They drew Man United this weekend. Like they are capable of getting points still. It's I can't work out if it speaks of the quality of the Premier League or the lack of quality. <laughs> I can't work out which side of the coin we're on, to be honest. But yeah, it's, it's anyone's guess at this stage. I mean, even we say with some certainty that Southampton will go down, they're five points off 12th. That's yeah. ridiculous. Now, they're a bit further behind, aren't they? I think, what's the gap between Palace and Southampton now? You're right, five? it's five points, yeah, and the level on yeah, games as well. That, that's really gap- like they could catch that up and be one place off a top half finish with two or three wins. That just seems mental when you think about how their season's gone. So there'll be hope in a lot of those camps. It's who's got the right strength, the spirit to get through that. And there are some teams in there: Wolves, West Ham, Leicester. Yeah, I don't worry about it at all. 
I think you look at the, um, you underestimate the importance of goal difference as well, because I think Southampton and Bournemouth have got True. the two worst, I think. Apart from Forest, yeah, they've conceded course. quite a few. But those well, two, Southampton think, must uh, have lost about five games, 9-0 this season. That's what they normally do. Always feels the way, doesn't it? lost at least one. So yeah, <laughs> relegation is is interesting, um, exciting, if not if you're involved in it, which is most of the Premier League, it seems. But uh, yeah, it's one to watch. But looking at the top of the table, just want to, pay a bit of homage to Arsenal. Again, we've done that a lot this season. Now, Arsenal winning away at Craven Cottage against Fulham, 3-0 on its own is an impressive result. And we just keep seeing Arsenal pass test after test after test. They look the real deal. And we can't really say much more about them, but the difference this time I'm seeing is Leandro Trossard. He's beginning to grow into this team so, so well. As somebody who was considered to be like an extra option for the team that was already doing quite well, was kind of a number two option when they couldn't get Mikhailo Mudrik, who went to Chelsea. Actually, he's having a better season. He looks short-term, at least, like a better option. Premier League proven. He's added that dimension to them, that off the bench especially, that they've been missing, really, hasn't he? He's been really impressive. Absolutely. He's got the creativity on the left-hand side that Saka has on the right-hand side. So yeah. now you've got more to worry about with Arsenal, and that's amazing. I think because... That injury to Gabriel Jesus left their forward line looking short. And of course, Nketi has been out injured as well. So they've had to play both Martinelli and Trossard, which I don't think we expected to see very often. And it's worked fantastically well. Um, Trossard's delivery is just outstanding. And it's funny because at Brighton, he almost played as like a false nine at the start of the season. And he kind of had to be their main attacking output, which isn't something we've always seen. He's also been like a, a left wing back during his time at Brighton. So it's a, he's such a versatile player and you can see that the, one of the biggest things he has going for him is, an, is a great work ethic. So moving to the Premier League leaders at this point in your career, it just seems like he's really up for it and he just wants to make this cemented and work. And Arteta must love having him around and on the training pitch in particular because he's showed so much quality since he's been at Arsenal. And a real positive spirit. He's not one that's come in just to pick up a paycheck or no. come in in the hope of playing European football. He's come in to make a difference. He's not a bench player like we kind of assumed. He wants to challenge for that starting berth. And that's that's great. Because how many times did we see Man City in this position where in January they go, oh, we could probably do with one more option. Let's go to a lower Premier League club, buy yeah. their best player. And, and they just sit on the bench and do nothing. I'm thinking of the Wilfred Bonnies of this world. Instead, <laughs> Trossard's coming and gone, I'm the one that can help you get over the line here. And there'll be a lot of Arsenal fans with Trossard on the back of their shirt next season if he helps them do that 100%. Yeah, I think it highlights the importance of, of keeping Premier League proven players in the Premier League as well, especially if you're challenging for the top half. You want to buy players from teams below you that are the best players at their clubs. And I think obviously City have done that with Jack Grealish as well. They took him off filler and um, added him to their arsenal. And it's just options off the bench usually. But I think Trossard's making an argument to be a starter for Arsenal because he's that kind of ambitious player, isn't he? He's played in a club in Brighton, who, who haven't achieved as much yet as, as he'd probably like personally. But at Arsenal, I think he could get some silverware under his belt because, what is he, 27, 28 now? Mm. And he's kind of flown under the radar until the last couple of years. So it's his opportunity to prove a point. And I think he's doing that brilliantly. And he showed his quality because each of his assists were brilliant. Like his, his awareness of where his new teammates are always shows how intelligent he is as a footballer and how well integrated into the training camp he must be. Because... I just think that for Arsenal now, you have to wonder where the ball is coming from because down the middle, they've got Odegaard and his creativity, Saka on the right, Trossard on the left. 
there's so many different dimensions of how Arsenal can attack you now. He's just mm. added some more depth to that. And Jesus is back now. He's back in the squad. He'll probably play some minutes in Europe this week. And that'll be huge for Arsenal. Because I watched the sporting game as well. And I was a bit underwhelmed by him, to be totally yeah, honest. I, I thought some of their depth really underperformed. And Sporting looked excellent in moments. And I thought they could have taken that game. Now Arsenal are at home with Jesus back. Yeah, they'll probably walk that. They'll probably get through it without any any trouble. So it just depends on where their kind of priorities lie for the rest of the season, whether mm. they feel they can push for both. The thing with Arsenal is we're going to keep singing their praises until the end of April. And then hopefully we still will. Absolutely. But we'll see how that run goes. Because I think it's what? It's Man City, Chelsea, Newcastle and yep. Brighton. Four games in a row. It's a really, really difficult period. And if they get through that, then hand them the title. <laughs> well, done. since since the City defeat, they've won, I think, five in a row, which I think is an emphatic response to what was the biggest yeah. game of their season. So they've passed so many tests, I think, on the road to this potential title. Absolutely. And players like Trossard coming into the team have only made that more, well, less problematic than it could have been. They could have had a wobble at any point. And I think that consistency is so important in this league, especially when you've got a team like City breathing down your neck. Yeah, both the January signings, you just look at now and think that was exactly what they needed in those moments, that Premier yeah. League assurance and quality that's going to carry them over the line. And not only have they won those games since the City game, some of them have been, yeah, like you say, challenges, like last-minute winners or coming yeah. from behind. That They've just got the right sort of spirit. So this one seemed a lot more routine, actually. And that's yeah. even that's a, a testament to how good they are because Fulham have, Fulham have made it difficult for a lot of teams this season. They're a very good side, this Fulham side. Now, granted, they're missing Jao Polinia, who's inevitably going to make a difference in the midfield, especially with the way he he breaks play up. And mm-hmm. I think he's he's made more tackles in the Premier League this season than any other player. He, he knows how to, to stop things. Not having him did give Arsenal a lot of freedom to attack Fulham. But still, you have to give them credit for the way that they unpicked it. Quite a, a tight Fulham mm-hmm. defence, actually. Yeah, that's segued nicely onto actually the the race for Europe, in, in fact, because Fulham are kind of in danger of sliding, aren't they, into kind of the bottom of that top half of the table in sort of ninth, tenth. It all depends on the teams kind of around them that are actually trying to put some form together, um, which is difficult to do in this league. So Chelsea, for a start, have won three on the bounce now since their, their awful run lately under Graham Potter. Mm-hmm. Liverpool looked like they were coming to some form. There's still Newcastle. There's still Tottenham, of course, who were looking for top four. So Fulham, obviously, are looking in danger a little bit. Brentford are up there in the conversation. Brighton are up there. How can you see that playing out? Who do you think will miss out on Europe? And are you including Aston Villa in that as well? I was including Aston Villa if we won this weekend. That's the really frustrating thing. If we'd won, instead of the draw with West Ham, we'd have been two points off Brighton. Yeah. And that, that's amazing when you consider where we started. With those three teams, Brentford, Fulham and Brighton, dropping points this weekend, we really had a chance to put ourselves at least in the picture. I think it's a step, It's probably a step too far now with the amount of teams that are above us. But generally, oh, it'd be so sad, wouldn't it, if Chelsea just shot above all of them yeah. towards the end of the season. And Liverpool have already done it. Um, yeah, Newcastle obviously winning the weekend puts them back in a top four conversation. That's the interesting one for me. Who gets fourth? Because none of them seem good enough for it, really. <laughs> Man United have found themselves dragged back into that conversation slightly as well when we were talking about Premier League, the, the title contenders recently. Yeah. 
it's really tight again and it's an interesting season. I love how much competition there is for things in the Premier League this year. I think I would love to see just one of Brighton, Fulham or Brentford break into Europe. Just yeah. one of them. That's all I'm asking for. Because seeing what they did with the investment and how much they went for it next season. particularly If you put Brighton in the Conference League this year, I think they win it. They, I can't think of a team that I would fancy above them. Yeah, they would be it. very and be, good. Imagine if Brighton won a European trophy. Yeah, it's but You can amazing. laugh all you want at the Conference League. That'd be incredible. That'd be so good. Ask Roma fans yeah. how they feel about winning the Conference League last year after years without a trophy. Fulham have never won a trophy, I think, in their club's history. Put them in the Europa League, in the Conference League, sorry. See how they got on. It'd be amazing. So, yeah, I think Brighton are the best of them. They're the I ones that are in the best that. position too. I would love to um, see them and sneak I would really forward. like to see it. Fourth or fifth for yeah. Brighton would be incredible, wouldn't it? Because, I mean, we're going to talk about Spurs in a moment, but they've got like three games in hand on Spurs, Brighton have, and they will pretty much draw level, I think, with them if they win all three. I know games in hand doesn't mean anything, but the fact that they're in that position is unbelievable. Um, it's also a testament to yeah. Spurs is poor in different form this season as well, isn't it? How, how are Spurs in this conversation still? I know they oh, won at the no weekend, idea. but... Yeah, we'll come to that, I'm sure. I think fourth or fifth is a step too far for Brighton right now. But if they could get top six, that would be amazing. That would mean outing one of Tottenham, Liverpool, Newcastle, really. And when you look at the resources that those three clubs have alone, not even thinking about the three above them, for Brighton to compete with that when they had their manager cherry-picked this season as well. Amazing. And yeah, I think they'll be really disappointed that they've dropped points to Leeds this weekend. That's a game that they must have thought we've got to get three points from that. They have got some difficult fixtures remaining, but who knows? It's it's wide open. I feel mm. like I'm pointless on this podcast because you've asked me who's going to get relegated and I've gone, I don't, I don't know, it's too tight. <laughs> you asked me who's going to get True. Europe, I've gone, I don't know. <laughs> but that's just the, the nature of the Premier League right now, it feels like. Yeah. The, the teams we've mentioned that are in that European mix, though, that's the the brilliant thing for us this season as Premier League fans is seeing you know Brentford hunting for a European place to see Brighton up there wherever they finish as if they're in Europe that's just unreal isn't it mm-hmm. that's the nature of it and when you think about how momentum and form plays a part in that I think Brighton the the, the favourites really to get a European place out of all those teams you know seventh or sixth would be doable more than doable they've got mm-hmm. such a, a team of players that are all on form at the same time as well Alexis McAllister scored again Looks brilliant. Caro Matoma, we keep talking about him. He looks fantastic as well. Uh, Moise Caicedo as well, who's fresh from signing a new contract. He can see bigger things happening to Brighton. So they're an ambitious club. I just hope they don't get picked apart, whatever happens. I think they need European football to kind of keep the majority of those star players there, though. Absolutely. Yeah, and and maybe they need to hold on to the manager too, because there's some sharks circling them in the water now, aren't there? Well, that's next conversation really is Spurs have been in the hunt for De Zerbi, apparently because Antonio Conte clearly is not going to be there come the end of the season. Um, whatever happens to Tottenham, they limped out of the Champions League really poorly, didn't they? And I think everything they're doing at the minute seems limp and poorly done. How are they in fourth? And what's the outlook for Spurs, do you think, Miles? Big conversation, that. Okay, yeah, that is a big conversation. And I think it's worth starting with the human side of it. I've seen this mentioned in a few places, but I do think it's worth talking about. It's not worked for Conte at Spurs. Absolutely not. It's not the right fit. He shouldn't be Spurs manager much longer. I don't think he will be. He definitely won't be there next season. That's very clear. But let's not make that 
Antonio Conte is a bad manager now. He no, absolutely no. is not. He's a phenomenal manager. It's not the right club for him. It's not been the right fit. And it's not been the right time. Let's not forget this is a man who's lost three of his closest friends within the last year. Obviously, the Spurs training keep, uh, coach that passed away, really, really horrible to see that. Viali that we talked about in the podcast and Mihailovic, um, it's all within a year, yeah. along with having major surgery as well. Like It's a difficult circumstance for anyone to do their job in. So I don't want to come down too hard on Conte. My name's not Richarlison. That's his job, apparently. It's a joke, though, the way that they are operating at the, at the moment. Yeah, it's, it's bizarre that they are striving so hard to finish fourth every season to then not even put effort into a Champions League campaign. That Milan game was woeful. Yeah. Absolutely woeful. A waste of anyone's time. The fact that, obviously... You are hamstrung when you have someone like Romero making rash, stupid decisions, which he seems to do on a regular basis. I think Christian Romero has potential to be an absolutely world-class centre-back. He's won a World Cup, yet I still watch him and think, I couldn't have him anywhere near my team. He's a liability. And then when you are struggling because of his actions and you then take off an attacking player and bring on another centre-back when you have to score, that shows to me that Spurs have got no ambition. We mock Spurs for not winning a trophy for however long. But what's the point in them even being in the competition if they're not going to go for it? The comments after the Milan game, when Richarlison comes out and talks about how crap his season's been and specifically names what Conte has done to him, said, I was told I was going to start. I've not been started. I don't know why Conte's done this. Conte then comes out and goes, no, no, he wasn't talking about me. His season has been crap, but that's because he's crap. He scored at the weekend and cupped his ear to the bench. His own bench. And then it was disallowed, which is hilarious and the most Richarlison thing ever. But that, to me, tells me there's no harmony in that squad right now. No. They're not playing for Conte at all. And his comments after the Milan game suggests he's waiting for a route out, really. Yeah. It's disrespectful from Richarlison to the extreme, isn't it? Because Conte, I think, deserves some respect on his name for the career he's had. Absolutely. And you're right. The mismatch between the way Spurs are at the moment and the kind of coach that Conte is, it's such a shame because he's wasted a whole season and a half mm where he could have been elsewhere achieving things. And there's not many elite coaches around at the moment, is there? There's no. probably Thomas Tuchel who's available. That's kind of it, really. So he could have he could have waited and bided his time. But Tottenham gave him a chance, probably made him promises that they've not kept. And the fact that they're lining up with Fraser Forster in goal, you know, Eric Dyer, Clement Longley, Ben Davies, their quality has diminished so much from when they're at their peak. And I think he must recognise that now and think, you know, this is going to be a big rebuilding job that's going to take a lot of money and it will and I don't think Spurs have got it he's not blameless I will say let's not forget at the end of the summer transfer window me you and Dave I think all said if anyone's going to challenge City and Liverpool this season it might be Spurs because they'd had such a successful summer it looked like but actually what it it shows now was it just screams of a lack of strategy because clearly Richarlison wasn't necessarily a Conte signing because he's mm. not playing him ever. Despite Son's terrible form, he never plays Richarlison. He obviously didn't want Jed Spence. Jed Spence has gone out again. Yeah. They've spent a load of money on another attacking fullback, which is a very Conte thing. So he's not blameless. He could have done more. I do think that. And you see the quality in this Spurs side at the weekend, for example, Harry Kane scores two great goals again. Son scores, which is something we've not seen enough of this season. There's still quality in that squad, but it's the wrong fit. And for me, I don't, I don't get why Conte is still there after that Milan game, because you've got 
your season's over. Spurs have got nothing to play for now. You can talk about they're trying to challenge for the top four all you like, but what's the point? Because if they get into the Champions League next season, is there anything to suggest that they're going to get further than the round of 16? Yeah. Absolutely not. What Spurs could have done is kind of what Chelsea have ended up doing inadvertently, at bringing in a manager and giving him some time to figure the squad out. Now, it's weird for Chelsea to do that so early in the season and use the middle of the season to let Potter experiment and find his best eleven. It looks like he might have got that now. And now he can kick on. Spurs have got a 12-game window or 11-game window now where they could get in a project manager, let him take the rest of the season. If they get fourth, great. They probably won't slip out of Europe altogether. They'll probably end up in the Europa League. And then that manager has got some time to gel this squad, work out what he needs in the summer, build something together. Conte's not going to be there next year. When so you say, why are we keeping him? When you say you were surprised to see Conte still there after the Milan result, do you mean from Conte's point of view or from Spurs' point of view? Do you think he should have walked? Either. Really? Either. Absolutely either. His contract is up in the summer, yeah. so I can't imagine sacking him would be too high a payout because he's not got long left on his contract anyway. For him, what's he playing for now? Pride, maybe? But look how stressful this year's been for him. Go and take the time out. 100%. Take the time out now and go, do you know what? My season's done with Spurs. Sadly, I couldn't get them to where I wanted to. The circumstances weren't right. I need to take the time for myself right now. And then hopefully in September or August, a job in Italy comes up that's more suitable for him. He can be back with his family and go for it again. Yeah. Right now is not the time for Conte to be at Spurs for either party. And I wonder if they're going to do the most Spurs thing possible of waiting too long, seeing candidates go elsewhere and lose out on an option. Don't get Pochettino back. It never is as nice the second time round. That, that, that doesn't no. seem like a good idea to me. Don't get one of these big name managers that's coming in because you've got a big fancy stadium. Get someone where the conversation is about Spurs instead of about the manager. With Spurs now, it's Antonio Conte's Tottenham. It was Jose Mourinho's Tottenham. Yeah. You want to be Tottenham, the project. You want to look at Brighton and go, look, Potter would have been the perfect manager for, for Spurs. Oh, definitely. They've waited yeah. too long. Yeah, I agree. That's what they need now. That's exactly what Spurs should do. Let Conte go now, use the rest of the season to give someone else some time to run at it, see what happens, and then go again next season because this season's been absolutely diabolical. They've played mm. terrible football. They've somehow got into fourth place, but they're not going to stay there if they continue the way they are. And that squad needs so much rebuilding. Yeah, it does. It's ridiculous. I think a season in the Champions League again, if they did qualify once more, they're just not good enough. And I think we need to. they need no. to accept their level now in the Premier League and in the European football pyramid, if you like, because they're not looking at elite managers now to replace Conte. They're looking at an up-and-coming European manager. They're like soft Deserby yeah. or the likes of Potter. Um, and that kind of, I don't know, young, kind of expansive thinking manager who finds potential in players that not many other managers would. The other, the other thing is as well, you've got to sort out this Harry Kane situation because I think in the summary he'll have a year left on his deal. So if Spurs are ever going to let him go, it's going to have to be now. And if you don't have a manager set up at the end of this season, it's a lot easier for him to go, well, I don't even know what direction Spurs are going in, so I'll leave. Whereas if you get a manager in now who forms some sort of relationship and bond with Kane, you're more likely to hold on to him. The only caveat I would say is I think there is a good candidate within the Premier League right now that they could go and get. And I think they're more likely to get them at the end of the season than now. I think there's two, Marco Silva and Thomas Frank. I think both of those could do really well at Spurs. 
And I think, I wonder if they're waiting and saying, finish the season yeah. out with them, we'll finish the season out with Conte, and then we'll go for Frank in the summer or we'll go for Silva. I don't think Zerbi will go. I think it's too early. Yeah, I think all those managers you mentioned, though, it depends how they finish their season because if they finish on a mm. high, then it's going to feel like a like a sideways step almost to a, a Spurs project that's massive, let's face it. Oh, you're gonna have more. You're gonna have European football guaranteed to some degree, and you're gonna have way more funding at Spurs than either of those clubs. Even mm-hmm. if Levy is not the the smartest owner and he doesn't fund it at the right times, Spurs spent money in the summer, and they brought Pedro Porro in January. Like they do spend money. You might have to sell Harry Kane to get some funds, but it's it is a bigger platform for either of those managers than Fulham or Brentford really are. Let's yeah. be honest. Well, I, I think they're the two that I would look at if I was Spurs. Yeah, fair comment. I think culturally that's a good fit and I think that's what they've not had in the last few appointments especially when you look at Nuno Espirito Santo it's such a an odd fit for them when he was appointed Mourinho again that's just too pragmatic for Spurs I don't know mm-hmm. um too big a character like you said they need a, a sort of more humble up-and-coming manager to to build their reputation and rebuild Tottenham's at the same time it's a difficult balance to find isn't it but yeah, we'll see how it plays out. Talking about Chelsea, actually, we touched on Chelsea earlier um, just a moment ago and Graham Potter's progress there. We've mm-hmm. had a lot of criticism for the Chelsea project and the way they've gone about it. We've often said how Graham Potter is an ill-fitting coach for the position, very much how Spurs' managers and appointments have been lately. But they've just won three games on the bounce. And one of those was that key one that we mentioned at Dortmund, which was a really impressive mm-hmm. win for them and so desperately needed. Does the tide feel like it's turning or is this just a false dawn, do you think, for Chelsea now? I wonder if it is because he seems a bit more settled on who his front three is and that's made a huge difference. Shao Felix, Sterling and Havertz is a great front three and Havertz actually has looked in much better form over the last few weeks as well. He looks like he's kind of finding his feet. Enzo Fernandez the same. He looks a lot more bedded in now. And having Ben Chilwell and Rhys James back, like, we've said that all season. Missing those two players is huge for Chelsea. A massive part of how they not only defend, but go forward. Yeah. Chilwell scores at the weekend. He he won the penalty against Dortmund with his cross. He's, he's in great form, and that's what Potter needed, that, that depth back. I think he's starting to work this squad out a little bit more. We've always said that, despite the fact we think the project is wrong and the way Chelsea recruit is wrong, Potter is a great manager. Even if he failed at Chelsea, we've never said that we thought he was a bad manager. So if we, he can start to get the best out of this Chelsea team, great. I don't know how long live that success can be with their their current model. Maybe they'll stop investing in the summer because they've spent so much on young players now. But yeah, it's it's a settling in period that we knew was going to happen. Yeah, let's wait till it's more than three games before we say Chelsea are back, though. Yeah, that's a fair comment, to be fair. I think if you you look at the bigger picture, Chelsea have had a terrible season. There's no getting around that. Um, Even if they finish in top six, um, that's a huge disappointment for them, isn't it? But the Champions League, I I still think they have ambitions to to win the competition, which I think is still Mm. a stretch for them. Um, They've not got enough momentum, really, than some of the favourites in that competition. But you're right, their midfield especially looks a bit more settled and going forward beyond them looks... A lot better. There's been a lot of talk on um, social media, especially from Chelsea fans, about a potential clear out. It's going to have to come, isn't it? And they're going to have to get rid of a lot of players in the summer to balance the books a little bit from a financial fair play point of view. Mason Mount's one of those players that I think has been talked about, who's had a lot of interest shown in him. Um, But for me, I think he's a Chelsea kind of heartbeat player. I think he's part of their identity. If he does go, that's a weird direction they're moving in, if that's the case, surely. Where would he go? 
I think United have been linked, Liverpool have been linked, and I think Mad. a couple of European teams have been linked. But yeah, I think Chelsea I Chelsea have got to sell some of their most expensive assets really to offset the the money they're paying at the moment. So he would be a big one to I move can't on. See them letting Matt go to a direct rival. I think instead they'll be looking at older players that are on bigger contracts. Someone like Angola Kante, as much as he's a legend of the Premier League, his fitness record at the moment and the fact that they have invested quite heavily in someone like Enzo Fernandez suggests that yeah. he's probably not going to be around for too long. Uh, there's there's other players within the squad, like hudson Adoy, still technically a Chelsea player. He'll probably get shifted. Yeah. Loftus-Cheek's come in and out. Uh, Conor Gallagher's come in and out. English players can always fret, fetch a higher price if you sell to Premier League teams. I think Mount should be very low on the list of players that are up for sale. Because, yeah, he's been in different... Sometimes with his form this season, his goal scoring hasn't been quite as high as it has been in previous times. But he's so integral to that Chelsea team, like you say, and he, he does so. so much for him. He's, the um, biggest one that I've seen is that they might activate Tammy Abraham's uh, buyback clause. In the summer. Yeah, I think that's that's well, obviously that's the position they need to to address, isn't it? But with the mm. Mount situation, I think he's just stalling on contracts, and I think he, they've made offers, but that. he's just not considering it because he. He needs assurances that he's going to play more games in that Chelsea midfield. And obviously, with the way they're stacked at the moment, it's not guaranteed either. So I can see why he's considering going elsewhere. But again, where to? It'd be good to see him abroad. Imagine Mason Mount playing elsewhere, like Jude Bellingham style in in the Bundesliga or something. Yeah, That'd be good. Yeah, absolutely. Because I, I, I can't see Chelsea letting a player go to another direct rival like that particularly after watching what's happened with Arsenal this year. I wonder if yeah. we'll see a real lack of that in the summer, for example. Like looking at how Zinchenko and, and Jesus have strengthened Arsenal gone back to bite City. Clubs have got to be conscious of that now, surely. But they put them they bend themselves over a barrel by spending so much money and investing so much money in the Premier League that that's the only place that they can offset their their outgoings sometimes. The only clubs that can afford your players are Premier League clubs. European teams have yeah. made millions off doing that. I don't know whether Chelsea have that luxury. Yeah. So what we're saying is Chelsea are not back, but they're better than they were. On the cusp, yeah. Um, But yeah, Mm -hmm. in the Premier League where so many teams are stopping and starting, we'll not read too much into it. Um, Chelsea's still only two points ahead of Aston Villa. Just saying. He's hanging on there, isn't he, Miles, listeners? He's he's got this weird hope that Villa are going to qualify for Europe, but uh, he's deluded. I just if we finish <laughs> above Chelsea, do you know how happy that will make me? <laughs> I just want to get into the top half this season. That'd be amazing. I'd love that as well, mate. To be honest, if I see Villa successful, I mean they deserve it. I think for the squad they've got on the manager they've got, I think they're a likable team and a likable squad at the moment. Next season, top six. Do you think? Same. Blimey, ambitious. Yeah, Anyway, that's Miles calling it early. We're only in March of the current season, so we'll see how that plays out. But I just want to take this opportunity to thank uh, listeners to the pod, um, whatever platform you're listening on. I don't know if you're aware, if you are listening to this on, say, Apple Podcasts, for example, um, we do have this podcast to watch on YouTube as well. And we are on every social channel you can imagine. Um, the the, the address, the handle for that is on the screen. So please do check us out. If you do subscribe to our YouTube channel, it really, really helps our growth. And we've just passed the 400 subscriber mark, which is a massive landmark for us. And we'd love to continue that growth if we can. And uh, like I say, if you're listening on whatever podcast platform you're listening on, go and watch us as well uh, and double that support. That'd be massively appreciated. Miles, until next time, mate, good to see you. It's been a while since we've both been on the pod together, but uh, yeah. yeah, it's been good. Hopefully Dave back next time and uh, we'll see you all then. Yeah. Cheers. Nice one. Cheers, mate. See you later.